You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of equine tendon healing with Dr. Roland Taller, owner of Metamora Equine in Davisburg, Michigan. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Taller is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania's College of Veterinary Medicine, and he's a diplomat in the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. He is ISOC certified and is a fellow of the College of Animal Chiropractors. His Metamore Equine is an ambulatory practice focused on sport horse medicine. Thank you, Dr. Taller, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about equine tendon healing. Well, thanks. It's my pleasure. Well, we know a lot has changed in the last decade in the availability of treatments for tendon injuries in horses, and we are going to talk about that. But let's first discuss the types of tendon injuries and proper diagnosis. So let's talk a little bit about some of the tendon injuries, and maybe even by breed or discipline. Sure. And and I think this is a really good point in that, um, you know, a treatment without a diagnosis has been compared to witchcraft. So, or, and I think Dr. Ken Allen has a better saying that that it's more comprehensive than that. But regardless, it is important before we can expect any kind of success in treatment, we have to understand how the injury got there. And there are certainly different types of tendon injuries that are associated with different breeds and disciplines. And, you know, the, the, the classic thoroughbred racing, thoroughbred racing horse uh, tendon injury is a core lesion in a tendon. And that's very different than a warm blood uh, horse, which really has more of a degenerative change and a progressive remodeling. So, you know, if we look at the, we, we have to ask ourselves why. And if we look at thoroughbreds, they're uh, at the speed they're racing, they're really straining and stressing the tendon to its maximum capability. And from a biomechanical point of view, that when a tendon is stretched, the energy that goes in that tendon, most of it is recovered when the tendon snaps back to normal uh, length. But there, if the tendon stretches 100%, the, the amount of energy that's returned back into the system might be 98%. So we have some energy that's retained within the tendon. And that retention is thought to be based predominantly in heat. So if they measure the center of these uh, thoroughbred tendons, it's actually thought that the center of the tendon is um, heating up from the uh, cycling of the stretch of the tendon to our work. And it's thought that that heat might actually be damaging the tendons. So that's kind of the, the thinking of why we have uh, central core lesions in thoroughbred racing horses. Whereas in, in sport horses, warm bloods, we don't get that high speed cycling, but rather we get kind of a degenerative change where we have a lot of loading, unloading, loading, unloading, and we get a progressive breakdown. So we have to treat these horses very differently. And, and I should add that all the research it's in tendons is based on one of two models. One is a, a surgical um, transection, so to speak, or a surgical injury to the, the tendon, which is very different than either one of the two syndr- situations I'd mentioned previously, or more commonly is injection of collagenase, or an enzyme to digest co- collagen, which make up the most of the tendon. And neither one of those two experimental models really simulates what's happening in, in the field. So we really have to take with a grain of salt what we're seeing in research because it really doesn't match up well with what horses are doing in the field. So circling back around to this again, you know, by breeding discipline, we look at horses at high speed, we get predominantly core lesions. And I guess you you could also say maybe younger um, endurance type of horses are in that realm. Um, The show horses, particularly the older dressage horses seem to have a lot of degenerative changes. The location of the injuries, so not only the type of injury, but the location injury also changes, where the thoroughbred racing horses typically have an injury in the mid-metacarpus, as opposed to the uh, show horses, have a tendency to have more of a deep flexor tendon injury right above the navicular bone extending up into the pastern, or at the attachment, what's called the muscle tendinous junction of the muscle to the tendon just under the back of the carpus. So um, I think those are the 
the two predominant presentations, and you have to excuse me because my practice is predominantly English horse or racehorse type of practice. I don't do many stock horses in this practice. There's a second group of horses that I'm suspicious about. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information. It's It's been shown in a paper that Cushing's horses or PPID horses um, have dysfunctional uh, cells that repair and are part of this dispensary ligament. To my knowledge, I'm not aware of this study being done on tendon tendocytes, but certainly it's been shown in the, in the cells associated with the suspensory ligament. I would suspect that it probably has a similar effect in the cells of the superdigital flexor and deep digital flexor tendons. But um, what has been shown in, in the, in the s- suspensory ligament is that these cells with the influence of PPID are unable to repair themselves and are somewhat dysfunctional. And I found that in horses, I would so I suspect that PPID probably affects the ability of soft tissue to heal itself. There is a group of older geldings in particular that present with a spontaneous disruption of the uh, superdigital flexor tendon. So these horses are typically uh, uh, lesson horses. They're working every day. Uh, or several times a week, they're sound, they're going fine, and then the owner will bring them out in the morning and the horse won't be able to walk and the tendon's big and when you put an ultrasound on it, it's just, it's been disrupted. And there's really no uh, event that occurred, it just, it, it's, therefore it's termed the spontaneous disruption. I would suspect those horses are probably a result of some impact of a metabolic uh, comorbidity and that hasn't been proven yet. But regardless, I think that's an important consideration. And I think as a final type of tendon injury, I think this compensatory overloading, I think Hillary Clayton had done some work where she showed that when there's an injury to one front limb, the compensatory structure on the is the superdigital flexor tendon on the opposite limb. So um, we can have compensatory injuries from one limb to the other side. And also to keep in mind that um, whenever we change the shoeing, particularly the elevation of the heel, we profoundly change the loading of the deep digital flexor tendon. So to the effect of about a two degree rise in the heel height, will usually reduce loading of the deep digital flexor tendon by about 10%. So if we, um, some structure has to take that load, and that structure is either the suspensory ligament or the superdigital flexor tendon. So they have, a, 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 they are they are compensating for the tension that we're removing off the deep digital flexor tendon. That's so, incredible. It's it's it's, a, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I think you know there's a kind of the, an overview of the types of tendon injuries and impact of of ages, work, and types of horses. And I know um, you're an ICEL um, person, so I know our audience understands that diagnoses on these cases can sometimes not be easy. So what is it that you look for in your cases when you're trying to diagnose a tendon injury? Well, I think, you know, obviously we're looking for heat, pain and swelling. And that's always easier if a horse has been sound, is young, and they come in from the field or after work and have heat, pain, or swelling. They, the, the thing that can be a little tricky about uh, tendon injuries is sometimes that's not as evident the day that it happens. Sometimes that swelling and inflammation occurs the next day or two after the harder work. So uh, what does make it confusing is that on an older horse, these older horses usually have multiple contributions to gait asymmetries or lamenesses. So, you know, we might be looking at some coffin joints have some arthritis. We were looking at some hocks have arthritis, a little bit of a sore back, a little bit of a sore neck. So everything's a little bit sore. And then we have a tendon that kind of sneaks in there. And that that you have to be very careful with what you're calling. And, you know, it's not uncommon for horses to have had a, uh, a previous tendon injury that is thickened that has remodeling that's evident on uh, palpation or ultrasonography, but it's healed. So just because it's thick and enlarged doesn't necessarily mean it's the problem. So all that makes it um, uh, 
kind of a conundrum or that we have to really sort out as veterinarians, right? That can be a, a good point. So when you're looking at the history of these courses, what might clue you in that, hey, it might be the tendon? I, I think I, you know, I wish I had more histories. I think that if you have a, um, I think if you kind of correlate the workload to what the horse is currently uh, undergoing, I think that is important. So for example, if the horse had been jumping three foot and now the horse is jumping two six and the horse is still relatively young, let's say less than 15 years of age, the likelihood of a tendon is a lot less than a horse that had been jumping four foot in a Grand Prix type of situation and all of a sudden mysteriously appears in your client's barn for sale for not a lot of money. And the the new owners want to uh, try jumping the horse again at that same height. So I think in answering your question, I think I would, uh, so I, I, looking at the history, I would look for performance demands that have changed. So if the horse is is suddenly working at a higher level than it had been before, and with that associated a higher level of performance demand, we start getting lameness, that makes me suspicious of tendon injury. The other thing I look at in history is if a horse has had repeated therapies to an area, for example, um, had been having a navicular bursa injected, coffin joints injected, a lot of uh, perineural uh, quote unquote blocking of, of the foot before shows so that it kind of, or shockwave therapy, there's kind of been an indic indication that there's been a chronic problem in an area that'll make me suspicious that there might be a deep flexor tendon injury going into the foot or something along those lines. So we're looking at history, we're looking at performance changes. Well, I guess, you know, surfaces too. So uh, when we, if a horse had been used to working on relatively firm surface and it suddenly goes to a horse show and that it's very deep at that, at that show, that makes me suspicious of a tendon injury. We have a lot of synthetic surface, so sometimes horses are, are at these shows for a month or two. They, I think they get acclimated to that firmer surface and they come home to the deeper surface or vice versa. Um, I think also what, where I start thinking about more, more injuries occurring is the center of a gravity of a horse is about three foot high, which interesting is about the height of most hunter jumps. So, when a horse is jumping less than three foot, then really they're not really elevating their center of gravity. They're just transferring it from front to back legs on on uh, coming up to a jump and going over a jump. So it's kind of, a jump is really more of an extended canter biomechanically. Once they start getting above three foot, then their center of gravity and their mass needs to rise up. And so it needs to accelerate higher and it needs to decelerate once it hits the ground on the other side. And it puts a tremendous increase of loading on the horse. And that's why you don't see near as many horses jumping four foot as you see jumping two foot six. So I think horses over three foot are, have a higher tendency to get soft tissue injuries in general. And it makes me a bit more careful around evaluating them. That's a really good point. I'm gonna, let's, let's talk a little more about you. So you were talking about performance demands at the onset of, of signs. So you think, you know, when, when they maybe high speeds or jumping or something that's different in the stresses as a veterinarian. Right. So, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about the horse's body is that it adapts to uh, loads that are demanded on it. And as long as we give the body time to adapt, most times it can, it can acclimate to the, that amount of load. But eventually, that amount of loading will start to fatigue the structure. And there's a, an interesting device. We have it down listed. Uh, we'll talk about UTC, which is ultrasound tissue. Uh, uh, <laughs> ultrasound tissue classification, clarification, characterization. There you go. So UTC is ultrasound tissue characterization, which is used in human and sport horse medicine. And it's a uh, it's kind of a, a movable ultrasound that reconstructs the fibers in the horse's leg on in imaging. And people that use this, and it's used in human medicine and, and equines, but they can see that after jumping, that the fibers actually have swelling or edema between the fibers. And if you monitor it carefully, you can return that horse back to work when some of that edema is gone and dissipated. But if you continue to work the horses before they've had a chance to resolve that edema, then you get a progressive breakdown. So, 
you know, I think to some point in management, we need to be cognizant of that because not every horse is the same. You can take a young horse and they, they're certainly much more agile and, and they can jump if they've been conditioned, they, they can jump and uh, do quite well. Whereas an older horse starting to get other comorbidities or other injuries starting to catch up to them, they start getting swelling, they start getting more degenerative. And if we don't give them a chance to heal after that insult, it's gonna progressively add up that we eventually will start getting fatigue and failure. That's a good point. So let's talk a little bit about ultrasound because that's a, a little tough, but it's, it's a great tool to work on diagnosing some of these and following, like you just said, the recovery. So how do you use ultrasound in your practice? So ultrasound is, um, is a fantastic modality. And uh, the problem with ultrasound is that it's quite subjective. So basically, you know, the sound wave goes out of the machine. And so the machine is literally a speaker producing sound. And then when it bounces back, the machine becomes a, uh, a microphone recording the sound. And I tell people it's much like, it's simply like standing in front of a wall and you're throwing a ball against the wall. And if the balls, if the wall is solid and it's flat, the ball bounces right back to you with the same, almost the same energy. And the machine will detect a sound wave in the same way and bounce back nice and bright. And when you have a flat piece of bone and ultrasound hits that flat piece of bone, bounces back, you get a nice bright reflection. But what if you're throwing a ball against a silo? So if the ball hits a silo and it goes off at an angle so that you can't catch a ball, or if you do catch a ball, it's spinning at a, at a bit of an angle so you don't have quite the energy that it came back to. And that's the same way when ultrasound hits a round structure that it, um, it, it doesn't have quite the energy coming back. So where you hold the probe and how you position a probe will really influence the type of imaging you get back. So how I use an ultrasound is I use ultrasound to be perpendicular to all the structures as much as I can. And then I'll pick the leg up and I'll use the, the beam at a, what's called a coos, which is angle contrast ultrasound technique or off beam imaging, where literally now I, I'm, I'm holding the beam at a bit of an angle to the structure and I wanna see how much of it still reflects back. And it gives me an idea of linearity. So if I have a bright, if I have a tendon, if I if I'm perpendicular tendon, it'll be nice bright and white. If I hold the beam at a little bit of an angle, 15 degrees or even less, it'll be black. And so a nice healthy tendon will be white when perpendicular and will be black when a little bit off beam. A tendon that's been injured will have fibrous structure in it. And the fibrous structure is, uh, the, or the scar repair is typically not linear. So it doesn't matter what angle the beam hits it, it comes back at the same brightness or, or level of gray. So on an injured tendon or a tendon that's had a, a, a scarring repair, I'll hold the uh, beam at an angle and it'll be pretty bright white. And then when I hold, I mean, when I hold it perpendicular, when I hold it at an angle, you'll start seeing a little bit of gray come back. And that tells me that that, that, that tissue has been injured, probably has been repaired. And it gives me an idea of chronicity. So if I have an old lumpy tendon or enlargement of the tendon, I do the angle contrast technique, and then I can get an idea of that scar tissue, if, if that's newer edema, and so it gives me an idea, is it a Q injury, is it a chronic injury? So I think ultrasound is really, really important. I think that uh, we don't, as veterinarians, we, we have a tendency to want to be static. So we want the horse to stand still. We want to put the probe on the leg and get a nice anatomic image. But I think the beauty in ultrasound is to evaluate these structures when they're moving. So I like to pick the leg up. I like to flex the ankle or the digit. And I like to see the tendons glide and the tendons move. And particularly, this is more important down lower in the, in the leg than it is up higher. But I like to, to take advantage of things that are moving. At this point in time, it would be nice to capture these images in video clips. Like the, I think we can tell more from video clips because it's always problematic to, to have another veterinarian send you images because I tell people it's like taking a picture of a TV show and you just have one picture and it doesn't really give you a representation of what's going on. So I like to see uh, a, a short video clips. Unfortunately, the industry just hasn't 
grasped that yet. And we're just not there to really uh, convey that in ultrasounds, but we'll get there eventually. Um, also, I'd like to see that the uh, images are well documented. So, so often people will have images and you really can't use them in the future because it, they don't have, they might not have, the, they might have the horse's name, they might not, but they might not identify left or right or a location of the limb. Um, using zones is problematic. T traditionally, we say zone 1A or B, 2A or B, 3A or B. Um, the problem is A or Bs are big areas. So what I like to do is I like to measure in centimeters from a joint margin. And then I can go back and I can say, okay, this injury extended from six millimeters distal to carpal metacarpal joint to 12 millimeters or 12 centimeters. And so it gives, I can write that in the notes. I can go back and find it. Today's Disease Is Your podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their unconditional investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program, the partnership with Equitrace, which delivers secure, streamlined record keeping and instantaneous temperature measurements when coupled with Merck Animal Health Biotherm Microchips. Visit MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com for more information. So if, when you're, when you're, I think that's great. That's a great tip on the measuring. Um, so when you're looking at these ultrasounds, what else are you looking at? At, at one point you mentioned the architecture. So what, what are you looking for as a veterinarian? So typically I, I, I like to see uh, I like to see size, and traditionally, if you look back in some textbooks and some papers written, they, they draw boxes around the uh, the structure, and they draw these nice rectangular boxes around a suspensory ligament or a superdigital flexor tendon, and say the area is so many square centimeters. The problem is, is that there really isn't a box structure in a horse. So really what was being measured was the uh, the acoustic penetration through the contact area on the back of the, of the leg. So you, you really need to see the full margin all the way around if you're going to measure that. So typically I'll take this my ultrasound screen, I'll split it, I'll put the left leg on the left, the right leg on the right. So I always do both limbs and I use the opposite limb as a comparison. So I want to I want to see overall size. Now that's tricky in a practice like mine because I have a lot of older horses that are still performing. So oftentimes I'll have bilateral injuries, but still I, I think it's very important to have both limbs evaluated. So I'm looking for size change. Next thing I look for is architecture, and architecture is the shape of the structure and the fascicular structure of uh, architecture within the structure itself. And then finally, I look for the echogenicity. And like I said before, it depends a lot on how you put the probe. But I want to get an idea of the echogenicity and if there's evidence of nonlinear tissue within it. And, you know, if you take all the horses that have a enlarged tendon, but no other signs, well, that could just be variation of the way the horse is made. Maybe he has a high foot on one side, low foot on the other side. He's a little different tendon architecture to accommodate that. And you're just looking at variation. If you have a horse that just presents with pain around the tendon, but no other signs, then he could have just hit his leg getting up or his buddy could have kicked them in the field or whatever. And it could just be bruising, right? And if he has had changes in architecture, it could be an old injury and not really significant at this time. But if you have enlargement with architectural change and sensitivity with lameness in that leg, then it starts becoming pretty indicting. And I think that uh, you know, the Ian Fleming is, I think, the author of uh, the James Bond series. And he said, if something happens once, it could be luck. Happens twice, could be chance. Happens three times, the enemy's definitely operating. So I, I feel the same way with tendons. You know, if we have enlargement, we have architecture change, and we have um, our, uh, we have echogenicity changes, then we can start 
getting more uh, reliability that what we're seeing is actually true and is actually the problem. That's that's a really good point. So what else besides ultrasound might you use on some of these horses that have tendon injuries? There are a couple of different things that, that are out there. Um, probably the gold standard is MRI. And one of the things that ultrasound has been found in a paper that was just published last year that compared a CT, MRI, and uh, ultrasound, that ultrasound really does underestimate, or as George Bush would say, my favorite quote is misunderestimate the, uh, the severity of injuries. So, uh, and you'll see that when you have a, a tendon injury identify on ultrasound and you put a needle into it and start injecting it, you'll see the Oftentimes, you'll see the uh, material that you're injecting go much further up the leg than you expected. So, uh, there, it is important to consider other modalities, particularly if you're in an area that you don't get good visuality of it, like the deep flexor tendon inside the hoof capsule. So, uh, MRI is a, is a gold standard and is pretty reliable. Um, CT with contrast can also be helpful, but it's underutilized. We, in the veterinary profession, we kind of went from ultrasound to, yeah, we have the CT thing and we went right to MRI. But now we're kind of, we're getting, getting a resurgent in CT because CT is much less expensive, much quicker, and it can be pretty useful, pretty reliable. So I think that there's more interest in, in CT and you'll probably see it come around more. We talked about MRI. Acoustomyography is a new uh, uh, modality. It's been shown to be useful for uh, evaluating high suspensory injuries in a hind limb. It was pretty remarkable in that it could tell if an, in, if an injury was there in a high suspensory or if it was healing, it could be gauged. It could gauge the, uh, the healing and help return to work. The system is called Curo, C-U-R-O. I've been frustrated with it. I think it, it my reliability hasn't been as good as I'd like it to be. It looks like there's some possibility that could be used for other types of tendon injuries besides a suspensory ligament injury. And right now it's just not being developed or just not seeing much information on it. Also, people have used thermography for evaluating tendons. I've, I've been frustrated with that because so often if a horse has a tendon injury, it's been poulticed, it's been sweated, it's been clipped, and all of those things will affect how much heat is detected or, or the thermal signature. And if you put a little bit of a draft in a barn and they bring the horse in from the round pen and they're rubbing its leg with a, a towel before you get there, it, everything gets mixed up. So I found thermography to be incredibly insensitive and nonspecific. So I don't use it any longer. And there are other people who would disagree with that, but that's where I am with it right now. And everybody has their own practice. Let's talk a little bit about complications. I mean, we, we discussed this just a little bit, but I wanted to return to this before because I, I lost a gelding who had PPID and, you know, and talking to a lot of veterinarians, that's when I discovered what you have said that, that they all feel like there is a, link between the PPID and the tendon um, structures and ability to heal. So what about re-injury on tendons? Because we hear about that a lot. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Something repairs never as good as brand new, right? Right. And, and I think that's the way tendons are. And if you look biomechanically, look at tendon and transfer energy through it, um, we're trying to prevent the accumulation of, of scar tissue so we don't get concentration of stress. So whenever two dissimilar materials are bonded together, you're gonna, or at that junction will be concentration of stress. So if I just think of a rope that gets torn and you take the note of the rope and you put it in a knot, you keep pulling on the rope. And where's the rope gonna break? It's gonna break on either side of the knot, not through the knot, but either side of the knot. So a tendon repairs the same way. If we have a, a repaired section of tendon, you can, there'll be a stress concentration and, and a higher chance of re-injury on either side of that previous repair. So we have to be very careful that we try to rehabilitate these horses as much as we can to try to reestablish as much elasticity in the, in the tendon structure. I think one of the most, difficult things is that pain is the first thing that leaves as part of the healing process. 
not and so coming into that is flexibility and strength afterwards and as humans we we squeeze it we look at it well it's not painful we're going to put them back to work and i think oftentimes they go back to work too quickly and we're just rushing to repair beyond what it that what it can take so if we look at tendon repair it really is in three phases first phase is inflammatory phase and that takes well, anywhere from a week to a month for the inflammation to, to settle down. The second phase is the uh, proliferative phase where the tissue comes in and starts multiplying and, and getting cells to goo into the area to start to try to get a repair. And that will usually take about three months to four months. Then after that is, is the strengthening phase. And that takes six months. And there's really not a whole lot to do about that. It just takes time. So if you start adding those together on the best case scenario, if you figure a week for inflammation, you figure a month for proliferation and six months for, for uh, strengthening. So you're at minimum at six months for healing, even in simplest injury. And if you go on the opposite side of that, you're a month for inflammation, you're six months for proliferation, and you're in at least another six months, if not longer, so you're well over a year. So the, the times that we tell people are really pretty true, and we can change the inflammatory condition of, of the leg very much. Um, you know, as I get older, I think that, I don't think that, you can affect a repair of tissue unless there is inflammation. I think inflammation is very, very critical in, in the repair process. And sometimes I question, why do we spend so much time trying to reduce inflammation? Maybe we should be trying to encourage or at least let it there to be part of the healing process. And if you look at the literature that says, okay, well, if we put corticosteroids into, the, into a hot tendon or a recent injury in tendon, surprisingly, I, th I would think it'd be very detrimental all the way around, but surprisingly, the literature is kind of mixed. Some of these horses really do quite well, and other horses have delayed healing. So likewise, if you look at the effect of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like bute, bute's been known to really... Uh, a factor impact bone healing. So if there's a bone injury, we really don't want to be having butte on board. Likewise, where there in human medicine, where there's a thesis injury, so wherever a tendon attaches to a bone, they usually try to discourage use of non-steroidal drugs because it impacts that. We could, we could probably say that's probably true for horses also. And there's even some mixed literature that says that non-steroidals impact healing of, of tendons and that's kind of mixed there's some areas some studies that show that it really does help and other studies show that that it hinders it so you know i think that probably too much inflammation causes further degradation and i, I tell my clients that it's a little bit like when you want to remodel your kitchen if you've had a fire in the kitchen you know you have some inflammation you want to stop the fire right before it destroys more tissue yeah. and then once you stop that fire you have to clean all that material out then you have to bring a lot of new wood in and then you start to remodel that and make it look decent and i think attendance not too dissimilar than that so i think there is some part of the attenuation of, of inflammation that's probably helpful so um, i i do use some uh, non-steroidal drugs in my practice i do use ice in the practice to reduce the inflammatory component and then i once that inflammation settled down, then that's usually when I'll put in, uh, or do you want me to go into, into what, what way I treat these right now? Or? Yeah, I mean, this is what everybody's been waiting for. So let's okay. talk about all these treatments that are available now. So then once, once I get the inflammation settled down and, and the horse relatively comfortable, then I'll, I'll inject in my orthobiologic of choice if I feel it's necessary. And then I'll monitor that, that structure, particularly about six to eight weeks, I'll monitor it because a lot of injuries, you look at them and they, they don't really look too bad, but six or eight weeks, all of a sudden they look a lot worse. And I think that it goes back to, I think there's an inflammatory process going on. I think the material's degradating and it's, 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 um, the, the lesion could look worse on ultrasound. I probably underestimated the severity at the first time I looked at it, but the process is going on. So uh, I do like to inject these uh, tendons if necessary. Um, 
then based after that, I, I monitor and I want to see that the, uh, the the defect is somewhat healed with some sort of uh, uh, cellular type of material. You know, I want to see some density come back on ultrasound. And then I, once I see that, then I, I start them in a rehabilitation program because it's really important for these tendons cells to have stress and strain put on them so they can start to organize. So treatments. Um, I'm a big fan of active rest. I don't like putting these horses in a stall, leaving them there for half a year. I think it's really bad for them. Mentally, their top spine. So I really think that walking is very good. And, and there was, a, I apologize, I don't have a good reference for the study, but there was a, somebody, a researcher had taken stem cells, they put them in a dish with no stimuli and those cells proliferated in an unorganized fashion and they didn't do anything. Then they had put a, a piece of string across that, another dish and the cells lined up on that string. Then they would take that string and they would periodically pulse it. And then the cells lined up and started forming fibrous material and organizing along that string. And I think in the same way, when we have a tendon that's moving and cycling, it stimulates the healing in a more productive pattern. I think people get confused and they say, well, I wanna turn my horse out for six months then. Well, turnout is not rest. So uh, I really try to discourage turnout in a big pasture. I think we want to really limit the horses running. They say, well, I can't do that. I said, well, I let the onus be part of my, I let my client take that responsibility. I say, my goal is to keep your horse as quiet as possible and hand walk. You know the horse better than I do. You can find the conditions. I would suggest you do a round pen, small paddock, find a buddy that, that's quiet with the horse. But I think all those, uh, we want these horses, I, like, I think it's good for horses to have a small turnout area. I think it's good for them to be walked. Um, the rehabilitation of these horses, I think, is very important. And this might be tough to talk about, but I'm going to attempt it here. Typically, when we have it, and I'm going backing up into the, to the therapies, because we talked about the, the, the rest or uh, stable management, the rehabilitation. Typically what we do is we say, okay, you're gonna walk for 30 minutes for the first month and next month you're gonna walk for 30 and trot for five. Then we're gonna walk for 30 and trot for 10. And we kind of step it up each month every day. They, they work a little bit more. So when you look at the graph of activity over time, it just, it steps up. Does that make sense, Kim, when I'm saying that? So if we look at biomechanical loading, it is the area underneath that curve. So the way the step goes up, the bottom part of that, everything underneath that line, if you add up all that, that, that area, that's how much loading the horse is accumulating over that time. What I prefer to do is I prefer to pulse that. So I want to see little columns. So I want the horse to walk a little bit, then go back and walk a little bit more, then go back, then walk a little bit more, and then next time they'll they'll walk and then I'll put a short burst of trot and then I go back to walk and a short burst of trot and I go back to walk. So my graph, instead of being a nice smooth step is a, but it is a step, but it's in spikes. Okay. So, so if you measure that area underneath all those spikes it has half the biomechanical loading, but they're still doing the same activity. So we can stimulate these cells with the same kind of obnoxious stimuli of having to work for a living but yeah, without fatiguing them. Because so often by the time you get these horses right back up to where they were before, keep in mind that something repair is never as good as brand new. If it broke before and you're doing the same amount of work, it's gonna probably break again. So it's not uncommon to work these horses. You get them all the way up to the level of fitness and then boom, there we go. It happens either in that leg or the other leg or something else happens and you have a re-injury. So what I tell my clients is I try to do this pulse type of workout rehabilitation and that we want to reduce these the intensity of work about one third of what you've been used to all the time and then when they go back they can still perform at that upper level but they need to go back and, and get their training and conditioning at a lower level if that makes sense yeah. and i think when i do that i think that a lot of these horses can sustain that for a longer period of time 
So the easiest thing for me to, to illustrate that would be maybe for jumping. So if I have a horse that's a three foot or three three jumping horse, or even a four foot type of jumping horse, I'll tell them do your training at two six two nine. Get your conditioning, get everything together, and then when you go to the show, then do the three three jump, but then stop and go back to the two six or two nine again. So let's go back to the. So I, we talk about the rehabilitation, but let's go back to what are we going to put in this in this tendon to fix it, right? Right. <clears throat> so initially, we were really excited about stem cells, right? We're going to take cells and we're going to suck them out of the horse's body and we're going to stick them in a tendon. We're going to grow new tendons. And we had the argument about, well, should we be using bone marrow? Should we be using fat? What, what's the best stem cell? Oh, my God, we need to do this or do that. It turns out it doesn't matter. Um, because stem cells really don't grow. We're not really getting new tendon tissue growing, but rather the stem cells are providing cellular mediators of cytokines and they moderate and modulate the environment of healing. So think of stem cells as being, there's a car accident on the road and the police show up and they have the tape and the sirens and the flares. That's what stem cells are doing. They're coordinating who gets into the area, who goes out of the area. They're moder moderating that entire uh, process. Interesting, you know, every horse has stem cells. They're floating all over their body. They're hanging around. I tell people they're like spiders hanging around, just waiting for something to happen. And that's not too unreasonable. You know, it, it's a bit like uh, the white cells in your body. They're hanging around all over the place too. But when you get an abscess or get a, a splinter in your arm or leg, or then the white cells congregate to that area to clean it up. And it's the same thing stem cells do. Interesting about stem cells is that young horses at two years of age, if you take a, a teaspoon of fat, they have yeah, millions of stem cells, just loaded with stem cells. And if you take a 20-year-old, 25-year-old PPID horse and take a teaspoon of fat, they hardly have any. So when we say young horses heal better, it's probably related to that in some way or another. And that brings up another problem with stem cells is that if you're trying to fix a horse's body that's gotten an injury from chronic metabolism issues, you're, higher, you're getting stem cells that have been raised in that same environment. So they have what's called the same comorbidity. That might not be the best thing. On the other hand, then you're going to use a donor from you use stem cells from a donor of another horse. And I don't know if that's you, know, you can get away with that one time, you start using another couple doses of that, then you start dealing with the immunogenicity because you're stimulating that. So, you know, stem cells have, they were excited, they're exciting things. They're, um, what we're finding is that if you take a population of stem cells and look at the surface of them, they're loaded with cellular vesicles. And these vesicles have little packets in them and they have all kinds of wholesome goodness and different types of cytokines and, and functions. And a population of stem cells, each cell has its own little kind of thumbprint of different vesicle type. And we don't know which vesicles types are best for tendon healing. And there's a company right now that, that is, that is uh, marketing these uh, cellular vesicles as a healing uh, product. So, that, that'll probably be something to keep an eye on that uh, might make a lot of sense. It might bypass some of the immunogenicity issues that we're having. And if we can get an idea of which cellular vesicle type, then we can concentrate and put that into that environment. That'd be interesting th stuff to see. And right now, I'm not sure we're quite there yet. The other issue we have is a lot of these stem cells are, are grown on fetal calf serum. And fetal calf serum is wonderful stuff, but it's also what grows... Uh, a lot of vaccines. So if you're injecting vaccines to stimulate immunogenicity, you're also stimulating against fetal calf serum, which uh, if you're putting stem cells into a horse that has been recently vaccinated, maybe that wouldn't be the best product to use at that time. Wow, never thought about that. Yeah. And I don't think that that's really widely, oh, there isn't a lot of awareness of that, but I think I, I would have some caution with that. So that's, that's where we are with stem cells. Now, currently the most common therapy people are putting in horses are platelets. And platelets are great because every horse has them. They don't seem to be so, they're not a kind of a, a cellular, as, as intensely cellular. So they have a, 
I don't think they seem to be quite as affected by the comorbidities, but that I might be speaking out of turn with that. But certainly they're easy enough to harvest out of a horse. They're easy enough to, to prepare and they're easy enough to inject in. Now we have a couple of problems with PRPs. We have no idea the best dose. So manufacturers tell us that we have a 3X or a 5X concentration. Well, we do know that if you have too high of a concentration, it's not good. If you don't have enough, it's not good. But we don't know what is good. And it's as simple as nobody really measures how many platelets they're injecting. So that to me is problematic. You know, we, we, take, we take blood, we spin it down, and as you're injecting in, we say we would put two and a half cc's of a PRP in. Well, how many platelets have we put in? We have no idea. And I think we can move ahead once we get an idea of, of what our concentration of platelets are. And it would be simple enough to do. It, it wouldn't be too difficult to, to have some sort of test that, or smear that we could kind of count platelets easily and know that, okay, we're, we're putting in, I don't know, 6 million platelets in this injection. But we, we just don't have that information. And so we really need to validate that. The other thing we need to validate is platelets sit right alongside the leukocytes. So the leukocytes are the white blood cells. If we suck up some of the platelets with, a, with or some of the leukocytes with the platelets, then we call that leukocyte rich. And rich always sounds better. Nobody wants to be poor. But leukocyte rich has a tendency to be more inflammatory. So in general, when you put platelet products in joints we, or synovial structures, you, try to, you probably want to go leukocyte poor. And when you put them in tendons, they stimulate a little inflammation. Remember what I, how I feel about inflammation. Uh, I, I think that leukocyte rich has a tendency to be a little bit more pro-inflammatory. So yeah. I, I, I prefer, so when I make up a preparation, I have leukocyte rich or leukocyte poor syringes right in front of me. And depending where I'm injecting, uh, if I'm not in a synovial structure, I'll put leukocyte rich. If I'm in a synovial structure, I put leukocyte poor because I don't want to stimulate an inflammatory response. I think that uh, one of the studies in humans was measuring the effect of PRP in uh, Achilles tendon injuries in humans, and they said it didn't work. And when you look back at the, uh, the, 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 the researcher, they, they were injecting the, the structure without use of ultrasound. So I thought it was kind of interesting that somebody would publish that, but I think you know it's important that we as veterinarians gain enough skill set that we can do this through ultrasound guidance. Because we don't want to be squirting this wherever we want to willy-nilly in horse, we want to put it into the lesion. And then I think that the biggest issue I've seen with the putting platelets in, in a defect is how much do you put in? Because it's very easy to overinflate the injury and you can have it you can see it dissect oftentimes when you inject in you push a little bit of air in from the needle or a hub matrix and you'll see that flash up and it's surprising when you inject in one area that you can follow that sometimes up tens uh, of three to six centimeters up the leg okay so uh, i think it's important to have ultrasound to see what you have um so it, it, I don't have a better way than just by feel. I, I, I look at the defect and when I see it expand up, I figure I have enough. And I, I, it's a very subjective uh, on my end. And I think that every veterinarian will need to get their own confidence level. You'll probably overinflate several of them and say, wow, that was a little too much. And then you'll learn to back off. Other therapies, uh, shockwave has been uh, interesting. Um, I started using Shockwave in about 2000, 2001. I spoke with the gentleman from uh, Germany that started Shockwave, Joseph Boning, and he had a, uh, a kidney stone or bladder stone or youthful stone. He went, went to surgery and they did lithotripsy and broke up the fragment. And when he got out, he is one of his cases he saw was a, a bony fragment at the anthesis of the suspensory ligament. So he thought he put shockwave on it to break up the little fragment and the horse healed. And at that time, we were shockwaving every two weeks per his guidance or his instruction. And I asked him, he said, why, why are you doing two weeks? He said, well, in Germany, you don't go to horses, horses come to you. So if you tell a client in one week, they won't come. 
You tell them three weeks, they forget two weeks. So that's how we got started, that subjectively. Since then, Scott McClure, when he was at, Iowa, I believe it was Iowa State, he's, um, he found that the mechanism was the stimulation of cytokine release to the uh, area around, around the injury site. So um, that is really what we're doing with shockwaves. We're stimulating cytokine release. Cytokines seem to release from a site of injury for about 21 days, then the, the response fatigues and the healing level kind of tapers off. So that's why we're shockwaving every, every three weeks, and I do it for three times. And again, we're just trying to stimulate cytokines. Cytokines are bringing in stem cells. Stem cells are moderating the inflammatory process and kind of kicking everything in gear. So when I have a horse that has, was fine and has a sudden acute onset of injury, I don't shockwave them right away. I figure they have enough stimulation. I wait 21 days, then I start. Uh, another product that's recently come out is alpha-2 macroglobulin. This is a blood product, uh, you, much like PRP, and alpha-2 macroglobulin is a protein. I call it a protein mousetrap. Um, it's a protein molecule when it identifies inflammatory uh, particles, it snaps around them and, and facilitates their removal from the area. It's really intended for synovial structures like tendon sheaths or joints. Uh, some of my colleagues have been putting them in around soft tissue structures and have, have been feeling that they have a, a good response and moderation of the inflammation complex or reduction of inflammation. Um, I haven't used it to that. I can't really speak much to it, but I think there's some some interest there. And, and you know, anything we can put around to moderate or inflammation without stopping healing, like a corticosteroid does, I think would be a benefit. There's probably some place for alpha two microlevin to be used. Okay. The other thing that people will use is they'll use lasers. I don't know what to think about lasers. <laughs> I've read I've read a lot of a lot of literature on lasers, and certainly in humans and and superficial structures in horses, it really has a nice beneficial effect and really can help with inflammation um, and really help with improved comfort. So uh, I think that there is really, for superficial structures, lasers are probably uh, good. We have a tendency to class lasers according to, well, they're, they're classed according to laser uh, class one, two, three, or four. And because we're humans, four is better than one. And really, what classes of lasers refers to potential damage. So a class four laser use is more dangerous than a class three, which is more than a class two. So if it's more dangerous, it must be better, right? And so you can argue that back and forth, but certainly the, the higher the number, the more potential thermal injury can be created. So you have to be careful with lasers. There's probably a place there, place where there's some nice regenerative uh, lasers, and they seem like they're quite effective. If you, It's always hard to discern marketing from actual science, but it looks like they're pretty good. Um, finally, there's a product called A-Cell. And there's other products out there. I apologize to the other manufacturers, but A-Cell is a, is a scaffolding product. So this is from the basement layer of pig bladders. So basically you take a pig bladder, scrape all the cells off it, and then remove this layer, and then make a powder out of it, and then you mix it up with some diluent, and then you can inject it into a tendon. And the idea is it forms a scaffold that the stem cells or that the uh, other healing cells that come into the body, the fibrinocytes, have a place to attach to so they're not floating around. And th there's, I've had really nice results with some of the A-cell. Initially, I was using too much and the horses got quite inflamed from the injection site, but once we got past the inflammation, they healed well since learned to back off the dosing. So A-cells, it has a place in my practice for large defects. That I, that I think I want scaffolding. So when I look at a tendon, I, I really, I evaluate it. And if the tendon is a diffuse enlargement with edema, I try to get the inflammation out of it. If the tendon has a, a defect or a void in it, I usually put PRP in it. If a tendon has a large defect and I don't think the PRP is gonna stay there, then I'll use A-cell, but most of the time I'm going for PRP. Okay. All right. And I know 
I know that that there's, and we've talked for a little bit now, but we have to talk about client management when it comes to attendance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think client management, um, so I like to do shoeing changes on these horses. So I'm trying to work with, uh, I try to reduce the tension or loading of the structure. And you can do that with asymmetric shoeing meaning that the shoe is not equal all the way around. So if it's a deep flexor tendon injury, then I want to try to raise the heels when the horse walks on soft footing. And the best way to do that is to put more surface area of shoe in the back of the foot and less surface area in the front of the foot. So the easiest way to do that would be to put a shoe on backwards or a reverse shoe. Uh, likewise, you could use an onion shoe or you could use an egg bar shoe with a thin toe. And to see an effect, I, I put horses on a, on a soft piece of foam and I ready grab their feet and we put different widths. And what we found is that a, a 34 millimeter width bar on the side you want wider compared to a 17 millimeter width on the side you don't want, uh, the side you want to penetrate more was the ratio. So if you're not achieving, if you will get a diminished ratio if you don't follow that the, those those numbers. Yeah. So if, so if I have a, a if I want a horse's toe to penetrate more because I want its heel to stay higher and, and relax the deep flexor tendon, then I'm going for 34 millimeter width bars on the end and the toe. I'm trying to keep at 17. If I have a suspensory branch injury where it's inserting in on the lateral side then I'm going to put a 34 millimeter lateral branch on the shoe and a 17 millimeter medial branch on the shoe. So when the horse walks a soft footing, the lateral side stays up on top of the cushion, the medial side penetrates into the cushion. I try not to use wedges in these horses because tendons and muscles have a relationship that they like to maintain a certain amount of tension. And the wedge works well for about two weeks then the muscle says, hey, we need some more tension here, and they'll start tightening up. And then you're right back to where you were, but now you have to wear a wedge all the time. So I really try to keep horses without wedges if I can avoid it. Sometimes you just can't. But yeah. part of the shoeing is that I try to have the client get, take the responsibility uh, of recognizing that this is an important part. Now, for me, the, the difficulty comes in is they don't need to shoe their entire life. I just try to do it through the healing process. So if a, if a structure is very weak, I'll try to shield it uh, from loading, from the excessive loading. Once I get the, the once I see the defect has been filled and healed, I start to see linearity and ultrasound. I start, it's starting to look more echo dense. Then maybe I'll start progressively getting the horse back to a regular shoe. Maybe, I might not get all the way back, but I'll try to get it more normal and less, less extreme. So if he's on a reverse shoe, I might go to a onion shoe type of thing. The uh, second thing we wanted to talk about is if a horse is, is an older horse and he has spontaneous degeneration or is having trouble healing, I really uh, do a lot of metabolic testing in these horses. And I don't think that pulling a single blood sample and sending off the lab is enough. I really think you need to do TRH stimulation on these horses. And uh, the other thing I, I'm doing more and more is oral sugar test. And that's where you're giving these horses caro syrup. And then you, after 60 minutes, you take a blood sample for insulin glucose. And after 90 minutes, another sample. I just hate squirting caro syrup in a horse's mouth. I get all sticky. So what I do is I call the client, I tell them how much their horse should be getting, which is 0.45 milliliters per kilogram. And I have them administer it one hour before I arrive. So when I arrive, I pull my samples. I am not sticky. And so I do the mixture of a tier and then I do my TRH stimulation test at the same time. So it's a lot of data, but I think it's, it's really useful. The uh, uh, other part of client management is a lot of people say, well, I, I ice this horse, I'm still icing, it's a month later and they're still icing the horse. Well, that's probably not what we need to do anymore. I mean, icing is probably very useful uh, in what we have active inflammation, we're trying to attenuate some of the inflammation. So, you know, initially we might ice his tendon for a week, maybe two weeks. And I 
probably don't do it much after that, except when it's starting to return the horse to work. And if they start getting a little sore after work, I'll ice it because they're, I think they're, they're straining and stretching the fibrous tissue and they're it's remodeling and adapting. So I'll use that. So clients have to, get, I mean, I think the key is you really want the client to take responsibility for this. This is, they need to be part of the team. And likewise, you know, the farrier has to be on board. So we have to have everybody together working this. And, and I think most people, if they understand what we're trying to accomplish, are really very happy to help because they want their horse to get better. That is probably the, a great point for us to uh, pause on. I know we, we could talk about this topic days, weeks, months, because there's so much to go on. But I really want to thank you, Dr. Pollard, for joining me today on this Disease Du Jour episode. I know that our, our veterinary and uh, vet student listeners are going to really enjoy this. And we want to thank our audience for listening to Disease Du Jour. And a special thanks to our 2022 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. And we invite you to listen and rate past podcasts of Disease Du Jour on your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any questions or suggestions, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.